Shannon. How are we? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Babs? I'm good, I'm good. You know, I've actually, in case I've not told everybody who'll listen, I'm a bride. And I've just come back from my first dress shopping, which is very exciting because my wedding has been rearranged like three times already. And went in today and got all fitted and everything. And then they were trying to give me bubbly and I was like, no, I've got to do this podcast. So they gave me a bottle of bubbly away with me. And everyone was way more excited about my wedding than I was because I just keep thinking it's getting put off and whatever. So anyway, that's the kind of drama afternoon I've had. Nice drama, but, but drama all the same. How are you? I'm good, thank you. That is nice drama. I think that I'd quite like to have that drama over anything else. So it's pretty exciting. <laughs> no, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. What have you been up to today? Just working along, getting up some <laughs> exciting plans coming for Jameson Law, guys. So planning those. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. See, I'm making her, making her work, guys. Making her work. She is. She is indeed. <laughs> and actually, guys, um, at the time of recording this, we've just done Tough Mudder. So um, my fiance's company, The Sport Dietitian, they were trying and succeeded in getting the um, UK record-breaking um, size of team in for Tough Mudder. So um, he runs a dietitian business and he had all his clients in. And myself, Shannon and Lauren, who you know as well from other podcast episodes, um, the three of us went down into uh, Tough Mudder in London and, yeah, had a great time. So we're all covered in bruises and knackered now, aren't we, Shan? We are. It was, do you know what? It was the best experience, but I am absolutely done in and I need to sleep for like the whole week pretty much. And my whole body <laughs> is in pain. I need to have like an ice bath or something to make me feel better. <laughs> oh my God. Experience tells me that does not make you feel better. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's not the one. Maybe the naps, that'll do. <laughs> it's not the one. It's not the one. Okay, so what are we talking about today? Okay, so today we're talking about e-commerce businesses. So what do product sellers need to have covered from a legal perspective? I thought it was pretty apt because can't believe I'm saying this Christmas is literally like around the corner <laughs> so guys you'll be selling all your stuff for Christmas coming up um so this is the time when you obviously have your legals done you know that we will tell you that 101 <laughs> times <laughs> but the e-commerce um side you want to have covered like 110 percent um from a legal perspective especially at Christmas time you know refunds consumer policy and things like that you want to have it covered you want to have your back covered and things like that so I've got loads of questions for you today Babs Good, 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 good. I think the thing is, like, e-com seems to be a little bit underserved, like, from a legal perspective. Um, see loads out there for service-based businesses, but it's often e-com business owners that come onto our free legal advice calls, and they just don't know what they're meant to be doing about consumer rights, what if goods are perishable, what are they meant to be doing about returns, what do their returns policies have to say, all that good stuff. Um and and so hopefully we'll kind of shed some light on that today. Um, and as ever, feel free to send in some questions as well if we don't cover everything that you need us to. Absolutely. Well, we've got a, a big range of questions, so hopefully it'll cover most of it, but I'm sure there'll be more. So yeah, if you want to send in any questions, please do. So will I just get started? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Just having some water. <laughs> cool. Well, I thought we'll just start off basic in this is where everyone gets your notepads out. I'll say this every single time. Take notes. Um, <laughs> what are the kind of key areas that e-commerce businesses should be focusing on? So I'm going to hark back to the legal leverage framework because the legal le- leverage framework that we talk about at Jameson Law applies to all businesses. It might apply to businesses in different ways and to different extents, but you still have your full legal le- leverage framework. So first thing, making sure your business is set up properly sole trader, limited company, if you're in business with someone else, have a shareholders agreement in place, 
make sure you're registered with the Information Commissioner's Office. I've heard lots of e-com businesses recently think that they don't need to um, register with the ICO. That's just not true. And actually, if you look at the exemptions for when you don't need to register with the Information Commissioner's Office, it, there's not a natural one that e-com businesses would fall into. Um, in the in case that I'm wrong, and I really don't think I am, but in case I'm wrong, it's 40 quid a year for your registration. I would kind of take the hit on that one um, and, and just, just go for it, really. Um, so you've got that, then you've got client contracts, which in the case of an e-com business is often your terms and conditions that are on your website. You then have general website compliance, so website terms, but obviously things like privacy and cookies policies, cookie pop-up banners, um, all that good stuff. And then brand protection, the biggie. So trademarks and copyright protection, same as any other business, just applies a little bit differently. That makes a lot of sense. Well, the next question kind of falls into what you just said there about the ICO. Um, how important is important, sorry, is data protection for e-com businesses? Could you give a bit, and we've spoken about it before, a bit more of a background on registering with the ICO because this might be people's you know first time listening to the podcast so maybe we can give a bit yeah. more kind of information there yeah so this should be top of your list it'll take you three minutes um, and it's the kind of easiest way to breach GDPR right so just friggin' do it um, so if you google um, or put into like your google chrome ico.org.uk make sure it's a legit website obviously normal disclaimers apply um, but make sure it's the, it's the UK government run website um, you just, um, I think you just hit on the right hand side, pay fee, and then it takes you through and you just fill in some basic information about your business. Now, that is basically you notifying the UK government that you process personal data. Um, that's, that's the most basic requirement of GDPR. Now, there's all this other stuff that you have to think about. Um, and Shannon, you asked how important GDPR and data protection is to e-com businesses well the answer is just as important as it is to any other business um, you still have an obligation to tell people what you do with their data you still have an obligation to protect data to answer subject access requests if somebody wants to know what information you hold on them and specifically to your question you still have an obligation to register with the ICO. That makes a lot of sense so personal data that can literally just be taking someone's email, taking someone's name, taking yeah. someone's address. Obviously, like e-com, you're going to be taking addresses for delivery and things like that. Yeah. So super important to be registered, basically. There's a lot of um, personal data that will come into you as an e-com business. Um, most that I see are names, email addresses, contact telephone numbers, residential addresses, billing addresses, um, card details. Now, most of you will use something like Stripe or PayPal. Um, you still should really disclose in your privacy policy that, you collect that data via the third party. You can say that you don't see the card details, but, you know, belt and braces is to kind of just disclose that anyway. There's other things if you think about it. For instance, if you're selling a business that personalises products um, and you have maybe somebody's date of birth on something or I love you so much, Shannon, you know that <laughs> I love Shannon and that's personal data. Like, that is all personal data. You know somebody's dress size, um, you might know their child's name. Like that is all personal data and, and quite a lot that you could come into contact with. None of it is super sensitive, but it is all still classed as personal data. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. So I'm going to move on to the next question and it might come back to me. It's blocked my mind completely. Um, oh, no, you're fine, we're fine. Um, next one is, God, my brain's Shannon's blocked talking about data protection. I'm having a made of a day, guys. I had a question, it's gone. So we're going to move on to trademarking. Is trademarking a crucial step to protect um, goods selling businesses, basically? 
Yes, absolutely. Again, as important for an e-com business as it is for a service-based business. Now, you will hear solicitors say that you have to trademark your business name or your logo or whatever you choose to trademark before you do anything else. There is logic in that, 100%, definitely logic in that. And that is you don't want to start trading and create a brand, etc. and then find out that somebody's you know, got a similar one and then you have to change it. Provided you've done your proper due diligence um, and you've done some digging, you don't need to register straight away. Now, yes, you're running a bit of a risk because what's to stop Tom, Dick and Harry down the road setting up the same business two days after you and going registering their trademark? The reason I'm saying it's not a day zero type thing is because it's expensive, right? It's expensive to trademark particular... I mean... The UK system isn't terribly expensive. If you're e-com, you might want protection in the EU and the US. They are expensive. Um, but it's more for a startup business. Even a couple hundred quid can can put a major dent in, in their budget. I mean, we know when we started Jameson Law, that would have been a really significant spend for us at the beginning. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you still have what is known as a common law trademark. So once you start trading you do have some protection on your name. Now, how long would I say you run with that? Three or four months, max. Um, At that stage, it's really important to protect your trademark. So, I mean, summary, um, don't do it so early that it bankrupts a business before it's even started, but do it fairly early on in the journey. The reason being, two reasons I always say to people, you don't want someone setting up with the same name in your market and causing confusion, pinching your customers, and secondly, you don't want someone to come along, register the name before you and force you to change your name. It's such a difficult one. Do you know what? I've seen so many e-com businesses actually message us on Instagram and saying like, I found this page that's got the exact same name as me. They use my pictures. Not that's a bit different, but yeah. um, like it's it's tough. And you know what to do. So, you know, you have that kind of safety net to fall back on of trademark and then yeah. you're sorted like the law is on your side there so that's what you want 100 trademark registered trademark unless you've like fraudulently registered it or shouldn't have registered it a registered trademark trumps everything um and and if you think if we think from a kind of uk perspective in the minute even like ireland is fairly similarly priced i mean a uk trademark is two to three hundred quid now yes that could be a big dent for for a new business but if you think about how much it will cost you to rebrand you know, put a different name on everything, communicate out the time it'll take you to communicate out to your customers, the aggro, the headache, like two to three hundred quid is nothing. And in Ireland, I think it comes in at like three hundred euro. Like it's it's basically the same. And it's really, really important that you you pay attention to 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 the prominence and, and the necessity for a trademark. I'm 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 kind of sick of hearing people and not that you shouldn't come and say to me, but I'm sick of hearing people saying oh, I knew I should have done this and I didn't and now this has happened. And I just feel really bad for them because I feel like if you'd spent 200 quid, you'd have been fine. That's the thing. It's the cost comparison. Like, even think, you know, God forbid it ever comes to this, you might have to go to court. Think about how expensive that could be where you could have just paid, you know, that couple hundred quid or euros at the start and you're sorted for 10 years, by the way. 10 years trademarking lasts you, so it's a long time. Yeah, and then at the end of 10 years, you just fill in a form and send it on your way, bish, bash, bosh even longer exactly yeah. <laughs> well um tailing off of that this is another one can people pinch my design if people pinch my designs what can i do about it if they do 
Um, and how do I kind of go about fully protecting my IP? So obviously we've talked about trademarking, maybe this one's more on the copyright side of things. So it's on copyright and it's on registered designs. So um, registered designs, it's not really something we specialise in at Jameson Law, but it is something that we're looking to expand out to in the near future. So if you do have any questions about that, do let us know and you can come on one of the free legal advice calls and we're happy to help. But basically... There is a database of registered designs. If you are an e-com business and you have created designs, I would really strongly strongly advise you to look into that. Get getting your design registered to make sure that nobody can kind of pinch that, um, can make something that's really, really similar and you know, basically ride off your success. Um, there is a copyright element to this as well, though, which is as soon as you create something, it's yours, you own it, it's your copyright. And so it becomes really important that you've got the right disclaimers in client terms, conditions, customer terms, website terms, along the bottom of your website, Instagram, wherever you're putting stuff. It's important that you have a disclaimer somewhere, not to be obtrusive and like annoy people and stop them wanting to look more at your stuff. But it's it's important that you have that wording out there because although you own something as soon as you create it, it's really your job to tell the world about it. And if there is, you know, if you ever need to send a cease and desist letter to ask someone to stop stealing your stuff or God forbid you ever need to go to court, if you need to take legal action, that is what will be relied upon. And if you've not, to- you not made those disclaimers, if you've not told anyone that they have, that they have to not pinch your stuff, that they can't copy this, they can't do that. How realistically were they to know? Yeah. Like, do you have the kind of proof that they know that then you need that? Yeah. Otherwise you're kind of screwed. Exactly. Basically. Yeah that makes sense okay well we're going on a completely different one right now and mm. um, a lot of kind of e-commerce businesses i'm sure use you know suppliers and manufacturers for their products yes yeah. um so if they are using those can they kind of use their designs for their own products um like how does that kind of work you know with your designs and others using it how do you kind of protect it there if you've designed something and you're giving it to a manufacturer um, to create on your behalf, it is so important that you have the right legal documents in place. I actually had a case of this a few weeks ago where I was speaking to someone where they've had a manufacturer pick up their designs and then use it on their own products and sell it as their own products. Now, another issue is they could do that or they could like use it for their other like retailers like you and, and just pass it off as theirs. It's a big issue. Um, two things. You need to have a really, really good manufacturer's contract in place. Um, and, and that's not to say you need to pay for legal advice every time you take on a new manufacturer. You can just have one manufacturer's terms and conditions that you require any manufacturer you work with to sign up to. Now, I hear a lot, oh, well, they might not sign it, whatever. A lot of the time, these are small manufacturers and they don't have their own legal budget. So you doing this really protects you. A lot of the time, there's just no contract in place at all. The other thing is having an NDA in place. So you, they should, even if you don't want to go full hog with a manufacturer's agreement, which, by the way, doesn't need to be super scary, but some people are scared by it. A non-disclosure agreement, otherwise known as a confidentiality agreement, means that your designs are protected, they're kept confidential, they're only allowed to be used for your products, and they can't be used for the manufacturer's own products or for their other customers. That actually covers my next question as well, (laughs) just to kind of go a bit more deeper onto the NDA one. So would you recommend that you always have an NDA with your suppliers or your manufacturers in place? Yeah, unless unless you're really not too concerned about stuff, um, which I think is rare, um, then yeah, I would definitely recommend that you, you always have that in place. I mean, again, like how much is it going to cost you to to 
pay for a solicitor to draft an NDA a couple hundred quid. Imagine the manufacturer took all your designs and sold them to all their own customers and then you're not the unique one in the market. I mean, again, it's this cost comparison. It's like the cost up front or the cost of having to deal with the situation. And and the time cost and the emotional cost and the headache, it's not just money. Um, having an NDA in place is, is imperative. Now, I often hear from people, oh, an NDA isn't worth the paper it's written on. And that is because it doesn't actually put a bit of tape on someone's mouth. Like it doesn't actually stop them doing the thing. But what it does do is it gives you legal recourse if they've caused you enough damage. So if they've lost you 10 grand's worth of business, you then have something to hang your hat on to say, you lost me 10 grand, pay me this or I'm going to court. Yeah, like you have the kind of backing. I keep saying the safety net, theme of the the day, safety net to kind of fall back on if something does go wrong and they are kind of breaking your NDA. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Cool. Perfect. Okay, next question. Um, so this is kind of if, you know, suppliers and manufacturers are supplying their own contracts or own legal documents. Mm-hmm. How do you know if a contract with an outsourced provider is legit? Like, should they be reviewing every single contract with them? And if so, what kind of should e-commerce businesses be looking out for there? Yes. Review them all. <laughs> I know that's <laughs> a really, go, I know that's a really shit answer, but why would you entrust your manufacturer and someone and you've no idea what you've signed? yeah you could be signing up to literally anything like anything so read those contracts the manufacturer's relationship is the lifeblood of your business like it's not like i'm asking you to read microsoft's terms and conditions like which by the way i don't think i've actually ever even done i'm not saying that because you've got no negotiating power the risk is extremely low like everyone uses microsoft unless you're an apple dude but like (laughs) the manufacturer's relationship is, is very risky um, and it's really it's imperative to your business um, in terms of actually reviewing them. I mean, you sh- can either work from a kind of cheat sheet of things that you should be looking out for or you should get a legal review or you can do a combination of both. You know, you could have a legal review for the first couple, understand the kind of things that are being pulled out and then continue it yourself if you don't want to keep spending on legal budget. That also works. Um, but what you want to really look out for are things like I think we spoke about this before. But things like um, performance dates, what happens if they don't adhere to them? If a manufacturer's drafted their own agreement, they will 100% have put in that they don't actually have to comply with performance dates, right? So you should be aware of that. What if you've promised stuff to people at a certain date? You're absolutely screwed. So performance dates, um, fees, confidentiality, in the indemnities and liabilities section, what you don't want is them to have capped their liability so low that if something goes wrong, you know it doesn't even make sense to sue them because you can't get anything back off them and something lastly that's really important is making sure that responsibility for the product sits with the manufacturer so if there's a safety issue if the good causes damage or hurts someone the manufacturer is the person that the end consumer should be able to come back to and that should be in the contract that's such a biggie isn't it yes for sure. Okay, well, we're moving on to another one now. Um, how do I deal with insurance when working with, you know, suppliers and manufacturers? Should they have insurance in place or does the kind of e-com business need to have insurance in place? How does that work there? Like, do they need to kind of combine the two? You should all have insurance. Um, so you should be double checking that your manufacturer does have insurance in place. A lot of the time, um, manufacturers seem to be in kind of Eastern European countries or further afield. 
And so they don't necessarily always have insurance. So it's really worth checking. If you're if you're working with a, a British or Irish company, they normally will. But again, still worth checking because they could be flying by the seat of their pants. Um, you should also, as an e-com business, just generally have insurance. You sh- the biggies for you are product and public liability. Um, so if something goes wrong with a product you sell and then you're kind of slips, trips and falls insurance, that's your public liability. Um, professional indemnity insurance for you guys, not as important. Um, that's really kind of if your advice is wrong, if there's something that comes out of services. But it is important for things like data breaches, confidentiality breaches. So maybe don't get it ASAP. Um, as long as you have your liability limited in your customer terms and conditions, you're probably okay. But I'd stick it on the list for like when there's a wee bit extra money in the bank. And I certainly wouldn't spend too much money on PI cover for, for you guys. The other one, the last one is to think about is employer's liability insurance. If you have staff, even if they're not payroll employees, even if they're just contractors, you should have employer's liability insurance as well. That's a legal requirement. That is super handy. Do you know what? To my question from earlier that I forgot about, it just popped into my head. So I'm going to go back to data protection and ask you that one. I was just, it was annoying me. It was like going through my brain. I was like, what is this question again? What is it? It's an emotional roller coaster today, guys. It's an emotional it really roller coaster. Is. It's absolutely, it's a wild ride, I tell you that. <laughs> um, I was going to talk about, <laughs> we're so exciting, aren't we, guys? We are living life on the edge. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, so obviously a lot of e-com businesses use, use the likes of etsy or you know ebay or things like that to sell yeah how do you go about that from a data protection perspective so obviously if you're working with etsy you might not see the um personal data straight away yourself do you still would you still need to kind of register with ico and things like that yeah absolutely you're still processing somebody's personal data um and ultimately you will still see the data i have lots of people saying oh i don't need a privacy policy because i operate on etsy so I use theirs. No, you don't. No, you don't. And you might be small enough at the minute that nobody's caught you and the ICO is still focusing on the big boys. But trust me, there will come a time when they realise that all these people are selling through Etsy and don't have their own privacy policy um, and aren't registered with the ICO, by the way. You should have your own privacy policy. You can't rely on Etsy's. You can't rely on Amazon's or eBay or whoever you sell through. You need to have your own and you need to have your own ICO registration as well. Take note, guys. That's a big one. <laughs> okay, curveball. Back to where I was. Um, <laughs> Shannon's a rag today. I think I'm losing it a little bit. I think I'm just overtired. Is that tough, mother? I tell you. <laughs> um, so, how do I go about client contract as an e-commerce business? You did kind of cover this at the start, but I thought maybe it'd be a bit better to go a bit more in depth. Like, yeah. is there an easier way for you know? me to send them as well obviously ecom you're not going to send them a contract and get them to sign it every single time we have spoken about this before yeah. in another episode but thought it'd be yeah. good to cover it now no i think it's really important because i think there can be a little bit of a misunderstanding i think when people hear client contracts they think right sending it printing it sign it or not significantly better send it through like a docusign or something now that is mainly service-based businesses that do that and actually even service-based businesses don't have to but it is the kind of accepted norm in those kind of transactions. Imagine you sent a document for signing to every sale you made over your website as a product-based business. I mean, it would just never happen. It'd be a disaster. So what you have is your client contract is essentially your fully fleshed out, detailed consumer terms and conditions. So the T's and C's that sit on your website, they should cover things like 
coming onto the website, don't pinch my copyright, don't bring viruses here, don't give away username and passwords unless we've allowed it, all that kind of stuff. But then it should have all the detail of the sale and purchase transaction. So how you place an order, what happens once you've placed an order, when is it accepted, what happens with deliveries, what happens with returns, what if something's faulty, what if something isn't as described, what happens if there's an issue, what happens with complaints... All of these things should be covered in your website terms and conditions. So as an e-com business, your website terms will be a lot chunkier than a service-based business whose website is essentially just a marketing site. Perfect. That makes a lot of sense. Sorry, I'm just turning my page in case you can hear that rustling over there. <laughs> I did not know what that was. <laughs> I was trying to do it really slyly when you were doing that and then it hit against something and I was like, oh, everyone's going to hear that big squeak noise I just made by accident. So like, apologies, guys. <laughs> somebody was being murdered there. Like, it didn't do you know what? I watched you pause as well and I was like, just going to pretend that it didn't happen. <laughs> the other thing I guess to say about client contracts or terms and conditions with e-com is that Whenever somebody's placing an order, you should force them to tick a box to say accept terms and conditions. And then that's the contract made. That's it legally binding. I think that's like a misconception, isn't it? That you have to have a contract on front of you signed for it to be legally binding. Like, yeah. it's not the case. You can literally just have a tick box and you're sorted. Absolutely. Which is good yep. for you e-com lot out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, here's one for you. And this one's good. Again, like I was saying, Christmas is coming. Um, how do I go about returns policies um, as an e-com business? Is it a necessity to have this in place? Um, yes and no. Um, it is a necessity to have the words in place. It is not a necessity to have it in a separate returns policy. In fact, a lot of businesses that come to me, I just say, stick your returns information in your website terms. Um, reason being, it's less admin and it's less legal fees because you're only paying for one document to be done. What I would say is some people do like to have a separate returns policy so that it's really easy for their customers to find where to go. Um, in which case, if you are cost conscious, you can just lift your return stuff out your T's and C's and have it as a separate section, really. Um, but it's absolutely essential that you have those words there. You're on the whole, I imagine most people that are listening to this are working with consumers. You're selling to consumers. And that means you need to think about consumer rights. And that means that you need to be extremely clear on what your returns procedure is. That kind of goes straight on to my next question you're doing well with this today um so Ooh. consumer protections you're on it you are on the same wavelength <laughs> um consumer protections obviously for e-commerce businesses what do they kind of need to know what is the kind yeah. of lowdown on everything you need to know there okay so there's one thing that applies to all products and there's one thing that applies to only some or the majority of products but not all so what applies to all products as an e-com business you are required to sell goods that are as described so as you've said they are on your website that are fit for purpose there's been lots of case law on this won't bore you won't give you all these case citations but what i will say is it's what the ordinary purpose is um so like if someone buys a chair and jumps on it several times and then they complain that it didn't withstand the jumping, that's not not fit for purpose. That chair was meant to be sat on. It wasn't meant to be jumped on. That's the kind of easiest example. So if someone says, oh, I bought this skirt and it doesn't look good as a hat, so I'm returning it, That that's just, well, I mean, I might try that for a laugh, but it's just madness and it's not going to fall within that. But if you sold a chair and somebody sat in it 
and it just broke, it's not fit for purpose, right? So that's the first thing, uh, the first two things to think about. The third thing is satisfactory quality. So there's different definitions of this. Obviously, if you're selling something that's really high priced and gives the impression that it's a high quality and it's like sweatshop material, like this is just not going to, it's not going to pass and it's going to be dependent on the situation regardless of the product they've bought, whether it's a normal, you know, batch made product, whether it is a consumable, whether it is food, anything like that, something that might go out of date. If it doesn't satisfy those three requirements, customers have a right to have a refund or a repair or a replacement. Um, And there's different timescales for that. Um, and that should all be set out in your terms, conditions or your returns policy, however you choose to do it. So that's the thing that applies to every business and every product. There is also the thing that applies to some products, and that is the cooling off period. Now, consumers have a right to change their mind within 14 days of making a purchase or receiving the product, whichever is later. Um, they have 14 days to change their mind and send it back for any reason whatsoever, Right any reason whatsoever. Now, that 14 days you don't have to stick to. A lot of companies increase it to 30 days, particularly like ASOS, Topshop, stuff like that. They, they do tend to increase it, but you don't have to. The legal requirement is 14 days. Now, everybody's going mental because they're thinking, oh my God, but if somebody keeps my things for 14 days, they're going to be wrecked. And then, yeah, doesn't apply to that. So if you've sold perfume and it's been opened and used, doesn't apply to that. If you have sold food that's gone out of date, doesn't apply to that. Um, if you have sold a bespoke product, if someone has, you know, asked for something to be made for them, something my wedding dress. It's <laughs> another opportunity to throw that in there. Um, that is a bespoke product that cannot be returned just because someone's changed their mind within fourteen days because it's been purposefully made for that person. Now, although all those things exist in law, it's your responsibility to be really clear with your consumers as to what applies to them because they're not legal experts and they're not business owners and they don't necessarily know. So it's really important that you have in your website terms, if you buy these chocolate bars from our website, you cannot return them. They are consumables and the normal cooling off period doesn't apply Another place where that's really, really common is like digital downloads. Maybe not. Well, it will apply to some e-com businesses, actually. A lot of like business owners on like Etsy and stuff like that will create designs that you just automatically download. Once that's downloaded, the person doesn't have 14 days to to get a refund because they've already had the benefit of the product. Got you. And <clears throat> sorry, clear my throat there. God, I'm having a good day, am I? <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> what I was going to say is, so you said there, you know, likes of chocolate bars that doesn't have the cooling off period, but you have to have the kind of wording, you know, in your contract or on your website. What if you don't have that wording? What if you don't? Does that kind of cause issues? Um, I mean, legally, well, they could kind of report you to trade and standards because you've not been clear with them. Um, but over and above that, not really. It just causes you such a headache, like you're going to have to then prove that something falls within the exception to the 14-day cooling-off period. What if you can't prove it properly? What if they have a really good argument as to why it should? You're just embroiling yourself in a dispute when you could literally just have had a line in your T's and C's that deals with it and then it's, well, sorry, no can do. 
And the thing is, like, your reputation is obviously one of the most important things in business. Like, you know, everyone goes to social media about things now. Do you want someone yeah. to go and post about you and then everyone thinks yeah. you're a bit shit? You don't want that to happen. <laughs> so Absolutely, absolutely. It's reputational as well. If you've been really upfront, this kind of applies to everything, not just cooling off periods. If you've been really upfront in your contract, it'd only be a real dickhead that would take to social media and say that you've not been fair. And you could very easily turn around and be like, mate, look at my terms and conditions. But if you've really not been clear and you've not been upfront, no matter how difficult that customer is, you've got some responsibility to take there and you're just asking for your reputation to be tarnished. Damaged, damage basically, isn't it? Yeah, you want to have that kind yeah. of legal leg to stand on. Otherwise, yeah, yeah, reputational damage is like huge. You don't want that to happen at all. Hopefully what you guys are getting from all of this is that prevention is better than cure. Always, it's it's not just better than cure, it's easier, it's less time consuming, it's less emotionally charged and it's cheaper. Exactly. Like we were saying, the cost comparison is immense for things like this. Like just yeah. spend the money at the start, a couple hundred quid or whatever, and then you're sorted down the line. Don't just Absolutely. spend thousands and thousands on like the repercussions of not having it in place, basically. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sure. Well, that was all my questions for you. Do you have anything else that you want to cover that I haven't covered in the questions I've asked you today? Um, what I would just say actually for e-com business owners is that the normal like website compliance stuff applies. So you still need to have a privacy policy. You still need to have a cookies pop-up banner where the users come on and accept or allow cookies. They also have to have the option to decline. A lot of banners don't have that option. They need to have that option. Um, and then it's really just a case of kind of regularly auditing your website. I'm doing work for an e-com client at the moment who works in the UK, but she also works in the US. And so she's got a US e-com website as well. It's really important that you're keeping up to date, that you're regularly getting your website terms and your privacy policies reviewed to make sure you've not missed any big changes in law, but also to make sure that they continue to be appropriate for the markets that you're targeting. That's a really good question. Good question. Good point, actually. <laughs> I can't get my words out today. Well, I think that's everything then. Oh. It's been a day. (laughs) (laughs) We are all just absolutely right from Tough Mudder, so we'll let her off. We are, we are. My brain's just not quite at full capacity at the moment, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's everything then. Um, Yeah, have you got anything else to add or do you think that's pretty much everything covered? I think that's all. Where do people go if they have questions, Shannon? Well, they go to legalleverage at gmail.com. I think that's the email. I've just completely forgotten if that's right or not, so... I yeah. totally said that because I couldn't remember, but I am pretty sure it's legalleverage at gmail.com. I think it is, but if it's not, uh, excuse us and find it somewhere. You can find it on our socials. It's there for you. Yeah, I mean, get us Instagram, Babs Jameson Lawyer, and then LinkedIn, Babs Jameson. Um, you can get us all across Facebook. Um, you can also always email at info at jamesonlaw.legal as well. We'll yeah, help you there. You can, you can exactly. <laughs> There's If that's not the right one, then we've got plenty of others. But yeah, we're really active on our socials, especially Instagram, like Bab said. So <laughs> there you go. Mm. <laughs> Spot the two absolute scatterbrains. Do you know what? We, we muddle through, Shannon. We muddle through. We do, we do. Hey, we made it. We made it. That's all that matters. <laughs> all that matters. What are you up to tonight? I don't know. I think I'm literally just going to have to chill and do absolutely nothing. Read a book literally do nothing like that's all i'm doing that's all i'm doing what are you up to tonight oh i've got a i've got a buttload of work on tonight um one of our lawyers is on holiday and the other one 
well, our whole family is unwell. So <laughs> we are kind of a wee bit short on our cohort uh, this weekend, or this weekend, this week. So we are got a bit of a bit of a backlog to be dealing with. It's one of those weeks, but we'll power through. We always do. We fight. We always <laughs> do. We always do. Well, thank you so much, guys, for listening. And um, as always, you know apologies that we're scatterbrained but we're here to help and um, if there is anything please do reach out and we will see you in the next episode see you then guys thank you for listening If you'd like to hear more about the Legal Leverage Framework and access some free resources, including free guides and trainings, pop over to our website, which is jamesonlaw.legal, and click on free resources. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Tune in to our next episode to learn more about how to grow and scale your business the right way.